Are you ready? Yeah, I'm just reposting. <laughs> You're like, Moshe, I'm addicted to threads right now. I'll get to the podcast in yeah. a second. Okay. <laughs> Hey, everybody. It is Thursday, July 6th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news, read between the lines so you don't have to. And uh, what are we calling it now, Jill? Threading? As we uh, come on and begin to tape this podcast, they've released the brand new social media app from Instagram, the Twitter competitor called Threads. And not going to lie, we're loving it. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, for context, Jill and I have been on it for approximately 11 minutes. Uh, it appears they were going to release it on July 6th uh, today, but they, as we record this on Wednesday evening, they decided to roll it out a bit early. So if you're wondering what is Threads, if you've been on Twitter, <laughs> you know what Threads is because it, it really is it, it feels just like Twitter. It's basically Meta's answer to Twitter. The cool thing is, though, that in the year 2023, when you probably do not feel like starting over on a new social media platform, you do get to kind of just transfer over your entire Instagram, Facebook persona, including some of the people that you follow. So it's a little bit easier. You're not starting from scratch. And we should note, you know, Meta, uh, Facebook has a history of this, right? Uh, when it comes to Instagram in particular, uh, they rolled out stories as an answer to Snapchat. They rolled out reels as an answer to TikTok. And it appears they've created a separate app here, uh, Threads, as an answer to Twitter at a time where Twitter uh, is undergoing a number of issues. Uh, there's been a lot of frustration among uh, many users about Twitter's algorithm, uh, various things Elon Musk has done since he purchased the platform. And so they saw an opportunity here to basically mimic uh, Twitter, uh, create a text-based app where, you know, you can post news and and have uh, conversations. Interestingly, Jill, they've made a decision. Uh, again, we're 10 minutes into this app right now. <laughs> uh, not to include direct messages. Uh, the head of Instagram, Adam Masseri, who's a follower of Mo News, uh, saying that they didn't want to create another inbox for all of us. So everything is out there transparent. Uh, and so while it uh, mimics Twitter in many ways, there is no direct message, like kind of private messaging function. Meaning that nobody is going to be able to slide into your DMs on threads. Famously, many people have done that infamously. Uh, that's how the whole Anthony Weiner scandal started, everybody. Remember that? He, uh, he thought he was messaging a picture of a certain body part privately, and it turned out to be public. Anyway, needless Whoops. to say, interesting. We'll see how this all develops. All right, we'll have much more on threads on tomorrow's podcast. Shameless plug here before we get started, Jill. People should follow Mo News over on Threads, our newest platform. We know we ask a lot of you listening to the podcast, the newsletter, Mo News Premium, Instagram, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But give us a follow on Threads. We're going we're gonna to see how uh, we do our uh, journalism over on this newest app. 10 minutes in, Moshe had 500 followers, and I was like, oh, what do I have? Eight, eight full <laughs> followers. So you can throw me some love too, Jill R. Wagner. Jill, I'll update people throughout the pod. We're up to 721 oh, as we begin. Good, I, I have nine, I'm sure. Okay, let's get to some news here. Uh, some troubling data shows that maternal deaths in the United States have doubled over the last 20 years. We're gonna look at some of the reasons why. Staying on the health beat, Australia is the first country in the world to let doctors prescribe psychedelics to patients with depression or PTSD. 
So where do things stand in the United States when it comes to legalization of these potential treatments? Meanwhile, the 4th of July holiday weekend was marked by at least 17 mass shootings, according to data. Also, an update to a story we told you about yesterday. Yep, it is true. Further lab tests show that that white powdery substance found at the White House was, in fact, cocaine. Some new details on where it was found. Overseas, Ukraine and Russia both accusing each other of planning an attack on the country's main nuclear power plant. And it's deja vu all over again. Two months after King Charles's coronation, Scotland hosts its own event to honor the new monarch. We'll tell you why. The pickleball craze is going professional with Major League Pickleball making changes to capitalize on its surging popularity. And what's in store for Apple's new AirPods? Plus, Moshe is on this day in history. Big day in Beatles history, Jill. It's the day Paul McCartney and John Lennon first met. All right, let's start with that new data that shows that the number of people dying in the United States from pregnancy-related causes has more than doubled in the last 20 years. This is according to a new study published in JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association. Now, diving into some of these numbers, there were an estimated 1,210 maternal deaths in 2019. That's compared with 505 in 1999. The number of deaths per 100,000 live births also rose from 12.7 to 32.2 during that time period. Now, in particular, Black mothers died at the highest rates, and uh, Native American Indians and Alaska Natives had the biggest increases when it came to mortality over the last 20 years. Yeah, this is a story we've been talking about uh, and covering over on Instagram. Among wealthy nations, the U.S. has the highest rate of maternal mortality, which is defined as death during pregnancy or up to a year afterwards. Common causes here include excessive bleeding, infection, heart disease, suicide, and drug overdose. That's how JAMA is putting together the mortality figure here. And there are a number of reasons for the increased risk of pregnancy complications, ranging from women getting pregnant at older ages as well as inequities in healthcare and the rise in chronic health conditions. Compared to other wealthy nations, the U.S. does underinvest in social services, primary care, mental health. It also has a higher rate of C-sections than many other countries, especially in Europe. According to data from the various state committees collected here for the study, about 84% of pregnancy-related deaths are thought to be preventable here. Now, unlike some previous studies on maternal mortality, which focused on overall national trends, they tried to analyze in the study state-by-state state data. And to their surprise, they found that some of the highest maternal mortality rates, especially among black women, took place in Northeast states. Two of the states with the highest rates were New Jersey and New York. Now, Southern states had a high maternal mortality across all race and ethnicity groups, but especially for black women, while the Midwest and Great Plains states had the highest rates for American Indian and Alaskan Native women. As far as causes here, a number of the biggest risk factors are conditions like cardiovascular disease, preeclampsia, maternal cardiac disease, and hemorrhages. Continuing heart problems and mental health conditions can also contribute to the death of a new mother. The researchers here say that doctors would have a better chance of dealing with these health conditions if more women had access to health care after their babies were born. That's a key period of time here when they feel that American mothers especially are neglected. So I actually love my doctors in, my, in the OBGYN practice that, that I go to, but I will say that this is a problem. And I've talked about it with 
And it's something that I've talked about with a lot of my friends. It's just as soon as the baby is born and, and especially as soon as you leave the hospital, which is really soon after you give birth, in some cases, it's like 24, 48 hours after, even for a C-section, the focus at least in the United States, really turns to the baby and not the mother. And our medical system just isn't designed really to support the mom. In most cases, you just go back to your doctor six weeks later. I had a C-section uh, with my son. I think we I went back three weeks later and then six weeks later. But again, in just speaking anecdotally with a lot of my friends, we all feel this way, that, that just our, the system in general is not designed to take care of women after the baby is born. Yeah, it's an issue that is getting a lot of attention lately, uh, and especially in the U.S. also, where we're one of the few countries on earth that don't have federally mandated maternity leave. So there's a lot of pressure on moms if they're working to head back to work. Uh, and so there's a number of factors here uh, across the board, uh, though hopefully the studies like it, though hopefully studies like this uh, continue to bring attention to the issue and hopefully means that companies, states, and the federal government uh, do more for moms. We should note about half of the births in the United States are paid for by Medicaid, and the majority of the deaths are in the immediate postpartum period. Researchers note that if you don't have easy access to healthcare in this period, you are at very high risk. An important note there, Jill, as we talk about how many of these deaths are preventable if you have access to healthcare. Right. And I could only imagine how women feel who don't really have that access, because as I was just saying, my friends and I, we all, for the most part, do have access to good doctors who we can reach out to if there's an issue. And we still felt kind of like that. All right. Staying on the health beat um, now to the status of psychedelics when it comes to medical therapies. Over the weekend, Australia became the first country to allow psychiatrists to prescribe certain psychedelic substances to patients with depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. Physicians in Australia can now prescribe doses of MDMA, also known as ecstasy, to patients with PTSD and psilocybin, the psychoactive ingredient in psychedelic mushrooms or magic mushrooms, to people with hard-to-treat depression. Health officials announced that decision back in February. Again, it took effect this week. So this isn't going to work like a typical prescription, and that's because in Australia, regulators still haven't approved any actual medications that contain these substances. So what this means, the psychiatrists will have to apply to become authorized prescribers. They're going to need approval from a government agency and a human research ethics committee. They'll also need to get a permit from Australia's Office of Drug Control to be able to import the drugs. Still, the feeling is that this puts Australia at the forefront of research in this field. And with that, Mosh, we wanted to take a look at where things stand here in the United States. So back in 2018, the FDA designated psilocybin as a, quote, breakthrough therapy. And this is a designation that's meant to streamline the development and review of drugs to treat a serious condition. Now, just last month, the FDA released draft guidance for researchers designing clinical trials for psychedelic drugs to treat various medical conditions. Now, as for a potential timeline for any type of approval on a federal level, still very unclear, although back in May of last year, an official from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services wrote that FDA approval of MDMA and psilocybin was anticipated within approximately 24 months. Uh, that is according to a letter that was obtained by The Intercept. So that would put us on just under 10 months left if they're going to follow that timeline. Jill, folks in the field say that Australia's approval here of these drugs could expedite the approval process in the U.S. 
because regulators don't like to be the first or only ones to do something here. So now that Australia's in, uh, we may jump in here. Switzerland, Canada, and Israel all allow clinicians to use certain psychedelics for patients with severe conditions. Uh, meanwhile, Jamaica and Costa Rica are among the countries that also already operate legal psychedelic clinics. Back here in the U.S., like with marijuana, it's probably going to end up being a state-by-state -state situation way ahead of the federal government. Oregon was the first to legalize the adult use of psilocybin when used by adults under the supervision of a licensed facilitator. Colorado voters decriminalized psilocybin in 2022. There's also legislation right now that's been introduced in Connecticut, New Jersey, California, as of right now, though, the American Psychiatric Association has not endorsed the use of psilocybin in treatments. Uh, they say more research is needed, though we have reported on studies here that have found that the use of shrooms and other psychedelics here uh, has been really successful in uh, patients with post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, depression, uh, and a variety of other issues. Now, one medical official tells Time Magazine that the drug itself is not the treatment. The drug makes the therapy more effective, but it's about the therapy. According to the Australians, in the case of MDMA, for example, the patient would likely have three treatments over five to eight weeks. Each treatment would last about eight hours with the therapist staying with the patient the entire time. Imagine that, an eight-hour high or trip, if you will, along with your therapist uh, as you look to be treated for these conditions. That is pretty wild when you think about it. I, I imagine uh, given that schedule, it'll make it hard to get appointments. You know, if you're with one patient <laughs> for eight hours, I mean, that's sort of like a surgeon with a really difficult surgery. It'll be interesting to observe here what happens, Jill, in Australia. One of the reasons right now that researchers are very excited about psychedelics is because evidence suggests that they might have a lasting beneficial effect on factors that cause distress beyond the treatment period, as in they could have a semi-permanent effect on people. Uh, whereas many medications, you know, you take them and you got to take them the next day and the next day and the next day. Uh, and they feel here, at least again, based on preliminary evidence, that this could be different. So this is a story we'll be watching. You can read further about it in today's Mo newsletter. All right, time now for the speed read. From NBC News, at least 17 mass shootings were recorded across the country over the 4th of July holiday weekend, including a string of deadly incidents that left as many as 18 people dead. The shootings happened between Friday evening and then into the early hours of Wednesday morning. This is all according to data published by the Gun Violence Archive. It's a nonprofit that tracks gun violence in the U.S. Now, they consider a mass shooting as a single incident in which at least four people other than the shooter are shot. Now, again, at least 18 people were killed with at least 102 other people injured. And this was uh, across the United States from Fort Worth, Texas to Boston to Baltimore. Yeah, unfortunately, if you look at the data from recent years, July 4th happens to be a very deadly weekend for these types of shootings. It's the height of summer. It's very hot. Everyone has off. Uh, and so you tend to see this, unfortunately, especially in a number of urban areas. Among the mass shootings that we're following here is one in Philadelphia that took place on Monday night, Jill, that left five people dead, two others wounded, including a two-year-old boy and a 13-year-old boy. The shooter, a 40-year-old man, had a semi-automatic rifle, a handgun, a ballistic vest, and a police scanner so he could listen to how emergency 
workers were tracking him as he was shooting people. Uh, notably, both guns he had were privately made guns from parts called ghost guns, which are untraceable. Uh, it's been a major issue in recent years as people are able to make their own parts for guns. Now, he is speaking to authorities uh, and they are investigating his social media account. One page believed to belong to him included a series of posts about guns, the Second Amendment, loss of freedoms. Uh, he apparently shared a mocking video of President Biden saying that Bi President Biden was trying to take our arms away. Authorities say that the shooter in Philadelphia had roommates who observed him exhibiting increasingly agitated behavior, and they apparently knew his roommates did about his stockpile of guns. But Pennsylvania does not have a red flag law in place. So even if his roommates would have called 911, law enforcement officials in the state are limited in terms of what they can do, and they definitely wouldn't have been able to take away his guns uh, ahead of the shooting, again, without a red flag law being in place. Uh, about half the states in the union currently have one. All right, now to an update on the story that we first told you about yesterday. Yep, it really was cocaine at the White House. Jill, did you have any doubts? <laughs> Okay, from CNN, the Secret Service says that further lab testing for the substance found at the White House on Sunday has come back positive for cocaine, but we are learning a few more details. So the substance was found near the ground floor entrance to the West Wing, which is the location where staff-led tours of the White House passed through on their way to the building. The White House says that it was found in a heavily trafficked area near where guests are asked to leave their cell phones before proceeding into the West Wing. Jill, I've been on one of those tours. Uh, I can't imagine somebody brought their illegal drugs um, into the White House with them. They did say that this was a minimal amount of the substance, but clearly enough for them to take notice uh, over the weekend, uh, call in an emergency, have an evacuation because they didn't know what the white powder was. There was the preliminary test of cocaine which, by the way, we totally bought, but they did that further test, which we're following up on here. So we should note that those tours of the West Wing typically only happen on weekends. Secret Service is going through visitor logs and video. I imagine they'll be able to identify uh, the person who may have left this behind here. Media sources describe the substance as a white powder that was found in a zipped bag. Uh, it was found by Secret Service while they were conducting routine rounds here. We should note that as on Sunday, President Biden and his family were at Camp David. They only returned to the White House on Tuesday morning. Right. I mean, there were some initial concerns that this was anthrax or, or something like that. That's the typical concern, <laughs> right, about white powder and government buildings. Um, and, and it is kind of comical. But at the same time, it does raise some serious security questions about why somebody was able to bring cocaine into the White House. Well, we should note that those staff led tours. I mean, every administration is different. I took one during the Bush administration. I took one during Obama. And the people who can conduct them are anyone who works in the West Wing. You're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people uh, who work there and can bring in friends and bring in friends of friends uh, to, you know, check out the digs and, and take you around. It's especially lenient when the president is not in the building, uh, that staff members can take their visitors around. So I imagine this will lead to potentially more restrictions here on who's allowed to bring in who's friends into this building. Everybody's got that friend that they're just like... <laughs> Don't bring Dude, them anywhere. Leave your blow at home. <laughs> Can you just leave your blow at home, please? 
All right, from CBS News, a lot of finger pointing in Ukraine. Um, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has claimed that Russia is plotting a potentially dangerous attack on a Ukrainian nuclear power plant, which is the biggest in Europe. Russian forces have occupied that power plant for more than a year. Meanwhile, Russia is accusing Ukraine of plotting to attack the same sprawling Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. It's in southern Ukraine. They're specific. They say it's going to happen within the next two days. And with that, though, a nerve wracking night for people across the country, but especially in the towns and cities near the plant. It's important to note here, Jill, as we talk about the story, as we talked about putting the story in the podcast, that neither side has provided any evidence to back up its claims here. But this is similar to the destruction of that dam last month preceding the explosion You had the Ukrainians and Russians both accusing each other of uh, planning something against the major dam uh, that blew up. Uh, Right now, evidence shows that the Russians may have done it, but there's been no conclusive evidence. Now, keep in mind the dam explosion did happen, but there have been many times over the last 18 months when the two sides say, you're totally going to do X, and it doesn't happen. So let's keep our fingers crossed that nothing happens to the Zaporizhia plant here. It has been under Russian control since they captured it just about a month after Putin first invaded Ukraine back in February of last year. Now, the head of the UN's nuclear watchdog agency has visited the plant multiple times, including right after that dam explosion recently, and has described the situation at Zaporizhia as serious, but not an immediate safety threat. That is, unless the cooling pond at the compound uh, comes under renewed attack. These facilities are typically reinforced, but of course, if there's a specific attack trying to really blow up the plant, that could be a major issue here. The IAEA, which is the UN watchdog there, says they will be asking for extra access here uh, to ensure that nothing goes awry. Jill, staying with nukes here, uh, the Financial Times reports that the Chinese leader Xi Jinping warned Russian President Putin against a nuclear attack in Ukraine earlier this year. This reporting is getting a lot of attention, as did that trip by uh, Chinese leader Xi to Moscow back in March. Uh, Since then, according to the Financial Times, the Chinese officials have credited themselves with making progress in persuading Putin to abandon threatening to use nuclear weapons all the time in Ukraine. China has been trying to play both sides here. Uh, They do consider themselves partners with the Russians, but they have been calling for peace. Uh, They have consistently opposed the use of nuclear weapons here. A senior U.S. administration official tells the Financial Times that the Chinese are taking credit for sending the message at every level. Uh, Notably, the Kremlin denies all this, saying no one needs to tell them what to do with their nuclear weapons. Uh, The Chinese clearly trying to show, though, that they're international players here, uh, that they are international diplomats, uh, and they have power and influence over Vladimir Putin. From the Associated Press, two months after King Charles III's coronation at Westminster Abbey in London, Scotland hosts its own event to honor the new monarch. And it was Scotland on parade, bagpipes, kilts, drums, and a Shetland pony marched down Edinburgh's Royal Mile on Wednesday. While Charles and Queen Camilla were not crowned for a second time, the new king was presented with the honors of Scotland, the crown, the scepter, and the sword of the state. One expert saying it's not a coronation, but it is very symbolic in that Scotland has its own identity. Now, this is all part of Charles's effort to cement ties throughout the UK to show that this 1,000-year-old monarchy is still relevant in modern Britain. There was a parade, uh, thousands lined Edinburgh's Royal Mile, Jill, uh, to cheer the king and queen. There were protesters, though, some holding signs that this is not my king. And not everyone is celebrating as cost of living uh, has gone up. 
The UK happens to be the only uh, group of seven G7 country, Jill, where inflation continues to increase. It's going down in the other six. So uh, really acute economic issues right now in the UK. Just some background here. Scotland was independent until 1707 when lawmakers in England and Scotland approved the Act of Union, which created the United Kingdom. So they've been united now for 300 plus years. Scotland's always been very important to Charles, was important to his mother, Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, but there is a growing independence movement within Scotland. There have been several votes through the years, through the decades, uh, to uh, declare independence from the UK. Most recently, one in the last decade, back in 2014. And by a 55 to 45 percent vote, uh, Scotland chose to remain in the union, uh, though there are calls for another referendum in the coming years. Switching gears from CNBC, Major League Pickleball is getting some new leadership as it looks to capitalize on the rise of America's fastest growing sport at the professional level. The team-based Pro Pickleball League announced Wednesday that it's named finance and media executive Julio De Pietro as its chief executive officer and former NFL executive Bruce Popko as its chief operating officer. So they're going to be tasked with steering the league at a time when the sport of pickleball has seen explosive growth at the amateur level. In 2022, Pietro purchased a stake in the Florida Smash Major League Pickleball team. He called the investment a no-brainer. Previously, he said teams were being scooped up for as little as $100,000. Now they're going for as much as $10 million. And Mosh, one of the reasons that I wanted to include this story in the podcast today is because I didn't even know there was a professional pickleball league. I've obviously heard of the sport. I personally haven't played it. I know it's popular. I did not realize that it went to the professional level. It's growing uh, astronomically, Jill. I imagine we'll be having Olympic pickleball sometime soon. And by the way, the people who love pickleball love pickleball. It's sort of like CrossFitters. Pickleballers want to talk about pickleball. They want you to play pickleball. They want to... I, I should note my mother-in-law, Alex's mom, uh, is a pickleballer uh, down in Florida. So I played. I've played a couple times now. It's a lot of fun. I mean, there's some unique rules, uh, and we've reported on all the injuries people are having because it's a small court. But it's a lot of fun, and again, the people who love it are obsessed with it. It's kind of like a cross between tennis and ping pong. It's sort of if you were standing on the ping pong table. And it's like two on two. <laughs> like if you like blew up the ping pong table, it's, you know, you can see it, you know, m- many of you may live near tennis courts where they've converted a couple of the courts or at least drawn the lines for pickleball. Uh, and, you know, some cities better than others. Uh, when it comes to that, we actually posted about that on the Instagram feed. I'll link to it in the uh, show notes. As of right now, the estimate is 36 million people played pickleball last year. The biggest challenge for this new league, though, is converting the casual pickleball fans into followers of this professional league. The rapidly growing sports league has attracted a lot of high-profile athlete owners. LeBron James is involved, Kevin Durant's involved, Tom Brady, Drew Brees from the NFL. In November, Anheuser-Busch bought a pickleball team. And so they have a lot of challenges ahead. They want to grow sponsorships. They want to build a media rights business, as in watching pickleball on television, as well as licensing and merchandising. Another challenge they face is positioning its players as household names. And part of the effort here will be that consistent media partner. Currently, you can watch pickleball on YouTube, ESPN, the Tennis Channel, MSG networks, uh, which can be confusing the fans. So imagine, like we see in other sports, that there'll be some major contract with one or just a couple major media partners. 
Okay, now some tech news from Bloomberg. Apple is working on a slew of changes to its popular AirPods earbuds. So when Apple introduced AirPods seven years ago, the company was criticized for the product's design and an accompanying move to jettison the iPhone's headphone jack. Do you remember the outrage? Well, that outcry, hard to fathom today. The wireless earbuds are one of the company's top products and part of everyday life, generating several billion dollars a year for Apple. And now the company preparing to give the earbuds a fresh boost, exploring major new health and body temperature features. So they want to add sensors to AirPods so they can determine body temperature via a wearer's ear canal. And that type of data is considered more accurate than a wrist temperature, which is collected on some of the Apple watches. And this could be used for a host of things like fertility tracking and also determining if somebody's sick, if they have a cold or another illness. There will also be a button you can press to mute and unmute yourself on calls, as well as improvements for switching between devices that are paired to AirPods. And Apple also added adaptive audio for automatically moving between noise cancellation and transparency modes. Jill, are you an AirPod user? I'm almost insulted that you're asking me that. Of course. Are you? Some people might. I, I Listen, I wouldn't be totally shocked if you were still a wired uh, headphone <laughs> Knowing person. Knowing me. <laughs> Jill, just given your general adoption of technology, <laughs> like there was a 50-50 shot there. I'm sorry you were insulted. Uh, I am a fellow AirPod uh, Pro user myself. I'm excited for what these new AirPods could mean. I'm not excited for the price, I imagine, when they come out at some point. The company apparently is working on a new hearing test feature that'll play different tones and sounds to allow AirPods to determine how well a person can hear. The idea is to help users screen for hearing issues, not unlike how the Apple Watch app actually checks for heart problems. Now, the plus here is the health component, Jill, but then, of course, there's always the privacy concerns about how much Tim Cook and Apple uh, know about you and your health. Separately, Apple is exploring how it could better position AirPods as a hearing aid, a $10 billion a year market that uh, does deserve some reinvention and some innovation. Apple has already added a number of hearing aid-like features, such as what they call conversation boost and live listen. They don't have regulatory approval, though. Last year, the FDA eased hearing aid purchase rules, allowing over-the-counter sales without an exam or prescription. That's created more of an opening here for Apple. They've been hiring engineers uh, from traditional hearing aid makers as part of this effort. Mosh Bloomberg reports, um, to your point about price, that they're actually working on a lower-priced um, AirPod, which would be great oh. considering I'm on my third. That'd be great. <laughs> I don't know about you. I, I lose them. And you lose them. And then if you lose one, you got to like pay for what, I mean, it's a whole thing with these wireless, uh, AirPods, especially if you're kind of walking city streets and you're near a sewer grate, or you have small kids around, there's a bunch of challenges there, uh, when it comes to tracking those things down, which I'm sure Apple doesn't mind as they try to continually get you to upgrade and, and replace what you're doing. All right, Jill, now time for On This Day in History, on this July 6th. Uh, we're going to begin with a happy birthday for President Bush. Bush 43, George H.W. Bush turned 77 today. Fun fact, the summer of 1946 saw three U.S. presidents born. Donald Trump was born in June of 1946. He just turned 77. In July of 1946, just a month later, George W. Bush was born. And in August of 1946, Bill Clinton was born. So all three of them born in the summer of 76, just a couple weeks apart. It would be interesting to hear uh, Malcolm Gladwell's take on that in, in his Outliers book. 
Absolutely. It would be interesting to see what was in the water uh, in terms of uh, <laughs> that summer. They would have all been conceived in the uh, fall of 45, just after the war there. Um, what's interesting, Jill, though, is despite all being the same age, right, Bill was elected in 1992. Bush was elected in 2000. Trump was elected in 2016 and is running for reelection again. And it's just remarkable to think that, you know, we're already 20 three plus years removed from Clinton's presidency and someone his age is running again. So And older with Joe Biden. Right. And then you have Joe Biden, who's three years older than these guys. When you first mentioned it and I was thinking about it, I think there is something comforting in that because I think professionally, I'm sure you have felt, as I have, sometimes competition with other people. And we've talked about age before where we're like, how she's only 25 and she's already doing that or whatever. But this just proves that there's a time for everything and that it's never too late even to be president of the United States. Jill, at this rate, uh, both of us are qualified to be president in about 30-something <laughs> years. All right, a couple other on this days to mention, Jill. On this day in 1942, Anne Frank and her family went into hiding in Amsterdam on this day, lived in a secret annex, an experience that was documented in her diary. They, unfortunately, would be captured just before the war ended in August of 44. On this day in 1976, women were allowed into the U.S. Naval Academy for the first time. And then a bit of pop culture news, as we typically do. On this day in 1957, Jill, a 15-year-old Paul McCartney met a 16-year-old John Lennon for the first time. It was at a church in England. Lennon was performing with his band called the Quarrymen. Paul McCartney attended, uh, was impressed by the group. You know, they were both teens at the time. Uh, he then introduces himself to John for the first time, says, I can play the piano, and they would take it from there. And finally, a film classic came out on this day 29 years ago today. Forrest Gump premiered, winning Tom Hanks an Oscar. Uh, Jill, we should note we've talked about how movies would be made differently in this day and age. And Hanks has said he's not sure whether Forrest Gump could be made today, given you know how the culture has progressed. Here, I thought you were just going to give us the life is like a box of chocolate line. <laughs> I'm very happy that <laughs> you didn't. No, Moshe, you had to go serious. You had to go serious. Jen A, Jen A. <laughs> Another big question. And the other big question to just put a nice little bookend on this podcast, will Tom Hanks give Threads a try? We know uh, early on in our podcasting career, we discussed that Tom Hanks was done with Twitter because it was just too toxic. He would right. post something very innocent, like, oh, I saw a, a shoe in the street. And people would write, F you, Tom Hanks. And he was just like, I don't need this in my life. <laughs> There's a whole story, by the way, I, I, I need to dig into it at some point. We'll find an excuse to tell it, about there uh, being a Forrest Gump sequel in the works. And they were ready to develop it and shoot it. And it just so happened that it came right around 9-11, which put a pause on it. And so we never ended up seeing a Forrest Gump sequel. Jill, needless to say, we have a lot to say about Tom Hanks and Forrest Gump. We could go on, but we, I think we need to end this podcast. Yep, that is a wrap. A big thank you, though, for listening to the Mo News podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Yeah, those follows are important. Those reviews are important. Uh, Jill, it's the first time I can say to everybody, follow us on threads. <laughs> We're on threads, everybody. Have you heard about it? Jill, uh, as I check threads right now, I've been on it. We've been on it for about an hour. We have more than 2,000 followers already on the Mo News account. Uh, thankfully, that connection to the Instagram page uh, will be helpful there. 
So follow us on Threads, follow us on Instagram, follow us on TikTok, follow us on YouTube. You can find Mo News on all those uh, platforms. We actually have a hub over on our website, mo.news. Also consider joining Mo News Premium. It's a way to support what we're doing here uh, and help our growth on all accounts, including Threads. Uh, if that's the way you're going to be getting your news. We're going to certainly be trying it out, Jill. We'll see how it goes. It's been entertaining, if nothing else, just to read people's first threads and the way that everybody's integrating themselves with this new platform. By the way, this podcast was not paid by for threads, <laughs> despite the fact that it sounds like an endorsement. Uh, we're going to end up <laughs> reporting on the good and the bad on that platform. Uh, anyway, guys, see you on the Instagram, see you on the threads, and see you back here on the podcast tomorrow. All right. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.